Hello and welcome to Bear Marriage. I'm Rebecca Lindenbach and do not worry, you will be hearing from Sheila in just a minute. She is currently still on vacation slash doing meetups in New Zealand and Australia. So if you are in Australia, make sure you check out the Facebook page for some events so that you don't miss up a meetup if there's one in your area. Today's podcast is going to be a fantastic conversation with Laura Anderson about when church hurts. But first, I have two quick things to talk about with you. First of all, our survey is still live and we still want your participation. If you are someone who is currently married and at least one of you in your marriage is a Christian, please check out the link in the show notes and uh, you'll be able to take that survey, help us with our research, and we really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone who's already filled it out. We've had a lot of you. Um, and I'm really excited to see what we're going to find. And of course, December means that Christmas is right around the corner, something that my four-year-old is very excited by and that I am slightly overwhelmed by, but also excited by. Um, and if you're looking for Christmas presents for people, for stocking stuffers, uh, we have tons of stuff in our merch store. If you order by December 10th, uh, Printify says that it will be there by Christmas, okay? They're the people who like fulfill all of our merch orders, who print all the stuff out, who make it all look so great. There are are two whole new merch designs available right now. The Science Rocks one celebrating that we as Christians do not need to be afraid of research and science, but rather the more that we delve into truth, the more we reveal the one who is the author of truth. So we love that one. It was also done by me and Joanna. And then also the Jezebel Club ones for all those women who call out injustice online and immediately get called a Jezebel by men who are mad that we're telling them that, yay, maybe women shouldn't be abused. As well, we've created some bundles so you can get like two hoodies with the biblical manhood and biblical womanhood rolls on them. So like a him and her package deal, you'll get a bit of a discount. And we've also brought back the love and respect merch line for this Christmas, including his and hers mugs saying, you know, I'm a man and I need love and I'm a woman and I need respect too. So yes, please do check out our merch store. We are going to have a link for that in the show notes, of course. And just a reminder that again, this weekend is like the deadline to when it'll be guaranteed to show up for Christmas, okay? December 10th. Well, I think that was all I was supposed to tell you. So without further ado, enjoy this interview with Sheila and Laura. I am so happy to bring on the Bear Marriage Podcast today, Laura Anderson, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Y'all know how much I like the word licensed there. And she also has a PhD in mind-body medicine. So Dr. Anderson, Laura, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is really good to be here. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I read your book last week. I read it once and I thought it was amazing. So here we are. We are here to talk about you. your new book, When Religion Hurts You, because I think this is a theme yeah. that a lot of my podcast listeners can relate to is, mm -hmm. you know, you love God so much and mm -hmm. he's so much a part of your life. He's, he's your entire identity. And then mm -hmm. things happen in church spaces, which end mm -hmm. up causing trauma. And it's, it's, it's awful. It's really, really yeah. awful. <laughs> mm -hmm. And absolutely you've, you've yeah. walked this, I've walked this, so many of our listeners have walked this. So we're going to unpack this today and talk about what trauma is. So I'm, I, I have a whole yes. bunch of quotes I want to read, but I'm going to start with one at the very beginning of the book, where you were talking mm -hmm. about how you were in a counseling situation. Um, you know, you're a licensed marriage family therapist, you're seeing all these people. And you said, on top of everything, many of my clients reported physiological and psychological mm -hmm. symptoms consistent with trauma, extreme stress and shame, all of which mere cognitive shifting couldn't help. So yes. 
you're yeah. seeing all these people <laughs> and the normal, the normal therapies aren't working. So tell me about that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, so I've been a therapist for 15 years now and it's been so wonderful to see even just in the last 15 years, how the field of trauma has really advanced and mm-hmm. our understanding mm-hmm. of trauma with that. So I think about, you know, when I was in school, it's like, Hey, you know, we got one tri- trauma and crisis course that heavily focused on crisis instead of trauma. And it was mostly cognitive behavioral or trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy that we, we talked about, but we weren't really even trained in it. And so many of the modalities that were being used were mostly cognitively based or what we might call like the in vivo exposure. So you like gradually expose yourself to whatever the threat is. And then your body is supposed to calm down and you're supposed to be fine. Um, But, you know, as, as more research has been done, as people's lives have been observed, we know that that's not in fact how trauma lives in the body. And the research has just kind of been lagging behind. But in the last 15 to 20 years, we've started to see the research head more into a body-based direction in regard to understanding that trauma does not just live in your mind. You can't think it away, but it actually lives in your body and there's physiological responses. Okay. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. (laughs) We need to say that again. You need to say that again. Yeah. Okay. So trauma yeah. doesn't just yeah. live in your mind. You cannot think it away. You trauma lives think in our bodies. It away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't think it away. It would be so nice, right? It would if, if trauma did live in our mind, if it was stored in our brain, essentially what would happen is our brain could time and date stamp it and say, that's in the past. So we're good. We are present, we're good, and and just keep moving along. But so many of us know from lived experience that that is not what happens, where we'll be triggered or we have these physiological responses where we're like, where was that coming from? You know, that's that happened years ago, and yet I feel like I'm back there now. Those observations and many more led to a lot of research being done to understand, okay, it doesn't seem like if we just think better, then trauma goes away. So what is trauma actually? And it is a nervous system or physiological response to anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, kind of overwhelms our ability to cope and come back to a place of safety. And so trauma is very subjective then. What is traumatic for you may or may not be for me. It's perceptive. It doesn't matter if there's an actual threat in front of us. It could be simply the perception of threat. And then it's embodied. Going back to that point, it lives in our body, not in our mind. And so our brain is very helpful for trauma and trauma recovery. But in terms of resolving how that lives in us, we have to look at the body. And that's where we start to see a lot of those physiological symptoms. It's where I started to see physiological symptoms in myself, in my clients, in my colleagues, in my friends of going, Hey, yeah, like you may have left this belief system or this harmful church or this, um, maybe some spiritually abusive leadership or whatever it might be, but your body is still responding as if it's back in that, that environment, which really correlates to what the research is saying about trauma and, and really how it's a physiological experience instead of a cognitive one. I just find this fascinating. I think people really need to understand this. It's not, you're not doing it to yourself. 
Like, no, yeah, your, no. bo- your body yeah. has stored this and we need to find a way to yeah. work through it. So, okay. So two yeah. big things. And when religion mm-hmm. hurts you, two big things that are different in the work that you're doing and what's so cool about this mm-hmm. book. And you talk about this early is first of all, you're not anti-religious. So most no. people who mm-hmm. write about religious trauma and who have written in journals and who have, this has been mm-hmm. a main part of their focus are coming at it as religion is a bad thing. You know, Christianity mm-hmm. is a bad thing. Yeah. And you're not, you're not like that. Mm-hmm. Like you're not doing that. You're not anti-religious. No. You're just. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. I don't find that to be helpful because I feel like for so many people coming out of high control religion or spiritually abusive environments, we're looking at dynamics of power and control. We're looking at a lot of prescription, right? You do this, you believe this, you say this, you don't do this. And if we kind of go like, okay, well, all religion is bad. And in order to heal from religious trauma, you must be an atheist. We're really kind of doing the same thing just Mm -hmm. on the other side of the spectrum. I don't think that that's healing. And again, that's really just only hitting your brain. That's saying, okay, just believe in a different way and then you'll be fine. Well, we know that's not true. And, and I, I think it's, healing's not prescriptive like that, right? We just say, you know, throw this away and do this and then you'll be fine. No, that's not helpful. I know there's some people that have found that maybe atheism is what fits for them, but there's so many people that would say, I don't, I don't want to have to throw away these beliefs or these practices or this God that I hold so dearly to me. And so is there a way to heal religious trauma without that? And I would say, absolutely. Yeah, there is. The, the way, the way mm-hmm. that I always put it is you're not allowed to steal Jesus from me. Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. As a therapist, it's never my job to tell you what to do or what to believe or that you have to land at a specific spot. My goal in working with the clients that I work with is I want to help you lean more into what is important to you. And so if you say, Hey, here is what works for me, then great. Let's, mm-hmm. let's incorporate that. Let's make sure that you are incorporating that into your life in the way that is the most meaningful and valuable to you. Um, And I think that that's what has been missing in treatment, you know, prior to the last five, 10 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's one thing you're not interested. And the second one, which I really like um, is that you sort of have a new definition of healing. Mm-hmm. That it isn't yeah. some place that you arrive at, mm-hmm. but that it's more like, you know, the sanctification process on earth where we're always changing. We're always mm-hmm. becoming more aware. We're always ripping off more layers and more layers mm-hmm. and more layers and getting, mm-hmm. you know, closer to the essence or whatever. But it, you know, it isn't something where one day we will have arrived and it will never bother us again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we, you know, what I found and, and really my own life was kind of the impetus for understanding healing in a different way, because when I had a very specific definition of like, okay, to be healed means I look like this. I feel like this. I think like this. I talk, walk, dress, whatever. Um, it was very, very um, definite and anything outside of that in my mind didn't count. So it didn't matter if I had different relationships or responded differently because I wasn't at this point of arrival in my mind. I felt like this doesn't really count. This isn't what healing is. And so because of that, I missed all the ways that I was actually healing, but because it wasn't this 
idea out here, it actually started to feel quite confusing and discouraging. And even there was a lot of shame connected to that too. A lot of like, why can't, why isn't this result happening? I'm trying, I'm working so hard to get to this and nothing is working. And so my dissertation chair was wonderful and kind of just gently nudged me along to say like, what if that, you know, definition of healing is a bit limited. And I didn't like it because in some ways it made me go, I might have to give up this picture of what I think healing or being healed looks like. But when I allowed myself to just lean in, almost like try it on like a piece of clothing for size to see like, how does this fit? It actually opened up kind of my eyes to going like, wow, I do see though, that I've actually come a very far way and each one of these moments do count. They do matter. And if I don't count this, then I kind of miss all of life around me. If I'm just only going to this goal, then I'm, I'm not able to see kind of the rest of life and relationships and, um, and it's not really living. I really like, it's, it's just kind of like moving as fast as you can through life and not really living and being present. And so that was really helpful to be able to say like, Hey, I think the point of healing is to actually live. And so when we take that definition of like healed with the period end of sentence off, it means that every moment does count. It means when we set a boundary or when we use our voice in a different way, or we, can notice when we're triggered and we respond in a different way. Those are all moments of healing and should be celebrated and should be seen as such. Um, and so I, I think that that's really fit for me and my clients like begrudgingly, they're like, Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I kind of want to just be done and be healed. And it's like, well, I get that I do. But if we, um, if we can kind of give ourselves permission to open that up, it, gives us the ability really truly to be present in our lives and to celebrate each moment that we are doing something different. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to move on to religious trauma in a minute, but before yeah. we do that, I, I do want to just dive down into what trauma is. You've, you've explained mm -hmm. it a little bit, but mm -hmm. just because I know it's, it can be really confusing to a lot of uh, listeners. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I really appreciated, you have, you have whole chapters on like what trauma does and even the nerve you, you just yeah. you explain trauma in the brain and and mm -hmm. so well there's Thank not you. a lot of people that do like neurology and <laughs> really well but um but you said you know that trauma isn't necessarily an incident that mm -hmm. happens to you mm -hmm. trauma is instead how we experience things mm -hmm. yes so can you explain yeah. that yeah. The little kind of quippy phrase that I'll use is that trauma is not the thing that happens to us, but the way that our body or our nervous system responds to the thing that happens to us. Um, so trauma, I, and I said this a couple of moments ago, trauma is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon. It overwhelms our nervous system's ability to cope and come back to a place of safety. And so that means that if, if something happens that kind of overwhelms us and we never are able to kind of get our feet back on the ground to feel safe, that, that trauma energy, and I don't mean like woo-woo energy, I mean like <laughs> adrenaline, cortisol, hormones kind of coursing through our body that our bodies are created to make, um, to mobilize when we feel like we are in danger, that gets stuck in our bodies. And if we don't have a way to unstuck that or in trauma mm -hmm. terms, kind of complete the trauma cycle. That's where it over time 
can become trauma, PTSD, CPTSD, or other physical or mental health disorders. The same is true then with, um, well, I should back up and say that is very subjective from person to person. Mm -hmm. So we are all different in terms of our DNA and other genetic factors, our environments, our connections, all of these factors that are often very subconscious. We don't consciously decide what is happening. They're just kind of happening beneath the surface, help determine how something kind of lands on us. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's then kind of what can, um, transition us into the impact of it (laughs) and ultimately could be traumatic or not. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And and that's why, you know, you think about world war one, when they were just starting to understand shell shock is what they called it back then, how, Mm -hmm. you know, what your buddy would have it, but you wouldn't, even though you went through exactly the same thing. Yes. Yeah. That's why the trauma as subjective is so important, even when we're talking religious trauma, because there are many siblings, for instance, that grow up in the same home and how one person was impacted is different than the other. That doesn't mean that one is better or worse, stronger or weaker. It just means that we are different. Our bodies are different. And so the impact is as well. Right. And how is small T trauma different from big T trauma? Yeah. So that was a way that uh, psychologists, researchers decided to kind of categorize trauma. I don't particularly love it, but I get it. I understand Uh it psychologically speaking. So traditionally, when we look at big T trauma, it's what we would call single incident trauma. Mm -hmm. And then small T trauma is what we might call complex trauma or would fit more into the CPTSD categories. Single incident trauma or big T is exactly what it sounds like an incident. This thing happens. So there's a before the thing happens and then there's an after. Right. And so oftentimes when we're doing trauma work, in some ways it's quote unquote easy because there's some very specific events that we are resolving how that is living in your body, as opposed to what is called small T trauma or complex in which it's a lot of things that are happening that are over time, consistent, persistent, maybe inescapable, um, things that are kind of grading at your identity, your safety, your sense of stability, and how you navigate through this world. And so when we go back to uh, resolve that and are recovering from that more complex trauma, it's not necessarily that we can point to one big thing and say, oh, that's the thing that happened to me. It's usually a pervasive sense of threat and overwhelm for a long period of time. And that's usually where religious trauma fits is Mm -hmm. in that category. Yeah. Yeah. And then people find themselves saying like things like, like, I have no reason to feel this triggered. Like nothing really happened to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know I'm, I think I'm in that boat too. Like it's not Mm -hmm. anything bad. Like it's not anything huge that you can Mm -hmm. point to, but just, you know, Mm -hmm. that there's something wrong. Yeah. Yes. I wanted to read this bit about complex trauma Mm -hmm. um, that you have on page 36, where you're talking about the four different trauma responses, right? So we know the first two, the first two people tend to know fight or flight, Mm -hmm. but there's another two. There's also freeze, 
and there's mm-hmm. fawn. Um, mm-hmm. And so here's what you said. Um, if our nervous system determines that we can't fight or flee, it moves to fawning or freezing responses. A person with a fawning response lives in a state of needing to please, appease, or submit to avoid danger or punishment. A person with a freezing response often dissociates, becoming small, silent, and a non-participant in their life. It only takes a couple of attempts at fleeing or f- fighting to realize that it's safer to fawn or freeze. Treating complex trauma is hard because in many cases, there's not one specific overwhelming incident. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what happens to so many of us is we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I am totally a fawner or I'm totally yeah. a freezer. I've disassociated. Mm-hmm. I don't have a voice anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is it if we know, if, if we kind of understand what complex trauma is, it's just the sum total of all of these things that are overwhelming us. They're too much, too soon, too fast, mm-hmm. and our bodies can't keep up. Why does religion do that to us? What is it about religion that can cause complex trauma like that? Yeah, there's a variety of things. And I always want to be careful to say, like, I don't believe that religion in and of itself is traumatizing. Just like I don't believe anything is traumatizing, right? Like you said, even with war, shell shock, right? One person can walk away relatively unaffected and the other one is deeply affected. So I want to be careful because I do think that some people do tend to pathologize religion or they'll say things like it's for a weak-minded person or, Mm -hmm. you know, you're always going to end up with such and such disorder within religion. I don't believe that to be the case. I think that's a very uh, ignorant (laughs) way to describe things. Um, But in terms of like why or how could religion end up as, as the kind of preemptive feature for trauma. So we're talking about, I I use a term in the book, high control religion. And so these are often systems that are built on dynamics of power and control which is usually patriarchal, um, where we've got a person or people at the top that are dictating the rules for living. And that's everything from, you know, the way to what you're supposed to do and where and dress and who you can be in relationship with all the way down to, it can be, here's the type of information that you are allowed to seek out or listen to, or maybe there is some harm abuse that's been done, but no, we handle that in-house. We don't let you go out and get a therapist or a lawyer or, you know, talk to the police. It could be things like having demands of your time, energy, money, resources, very rigid, narrow um, definitions of gender and sexuality that you must live by. And and all of this is um, kind of covered over in the umbrella of God Mm -hmm. because God said so, right? And so one of the things in the back of my book, there's a, the religious power and control wheel. And we'll oftentimes see like, oh, well that happens or this happens or whatever. And they're seemingly benign or small or, you know, whatever type behaviors or um, Mm -hmm. things that are happening. But over time, as those things build up on themselves, what we see is they start to really truly gain a sense of power over people to the point where it's like my authenticity, my identity, who I am, I I cannot show up. I have to fragment myself. I have to cut myself off um, in order to survive in this system. Now, the other piece of that is there's a lot of warning for outside of the system. So if you leave, uh, you'll be disconnected from your friends and family. If you leave, we will give you over to the devil and he can have his way with you. If you leave 
what are you going to do because you don't have any education or training or ways to earn money for your family, like very real things. And what that does is it increases the amount of power over you. Now, I certainly don't want to suggest that that always leads to trauma. It doesn't. But when we start to see these tiny, what are seemingly tiny or small or insignificant things that are coming on over time, increasing and have consequence, that's where we start to see that they can really become inescapable, persistent, overwhelming. And that's where we do oftentimes have to engage in behaviors like fighting or flighting, or for women and children in particular, fawning and freezing. Um, Those become the safest ways to kind of live out of that fawning or live out of that freezing in order to survive a situation like that. Yeah, it Mm is. You know, um, as I was reading it on on page uh, 41, 42, you have a bunch of different examples of things that can that can be religious abuse mm-hmm. that can mm-hmm. that are often you know the the catalyst for for people experiencing trauma and I'm reading mm-hmm. through this and I think so many of us have experienced these things in churches and mm-hmm. we shouldn't have um you know mm-hmm. intimidation making people feel afraid you know by using actions and gestures that could suggest disconnection from the community teaching people yeah. they deserve eternal conscious torment if they don't behave exactly as you want them to Mm-hmm. Um, emotional abuse, making individuals feel bad about themselves, calling them names like worthless or sinner, publicly or privately humiliating them for mistakes or acts deemed sinful. Um, I mm-hmm. think about the women who have told me that, um, you know, the, the, the church would invite women who were pregnant outside of marriage up to the front of the church to apologize, you know, that, yes, that kind yeah. of thing. I've heard of that from a lot of women. So many. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, isolation requiring individuals to have relationships only with people within the religious system. And I think mm-hmm. especially, um, when it comes to counseling, you know, going for help for depression yes. and mental health and being told, yeah. don't go see a doctor because doctors, mm-hmm. you know, don't believe in, in, the right thing and don't understand it's a spiritual problem Mm -hmm. um you know patriarchal privilege treating women children and other marginalized individuals as lesser than or subservient placing men over you and there's so many there's Mm -hmm. so many other ones but as you read this it's like the church shouldn't be like this and it doesn't need Mm -hmm. to be like this none of this is of jesus Mm -hmm. none of this is none of this looks anything like jesus yeah Yeah. but this is so much what so many of our churches Mm -hmm. have become Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing, one of the projects that you were involved in, which I think is really interesting is the adverse religious experiences scale. So mm-hmm. that, which you kind of based off the ACE. So what yes. is the ACE? Mm-hmm. What is the ACE? Yeah. So the ACE study is adverse childhood experiences. It was a study that was done by Vincent Folletti that came out in 1998, I think, um, but was research all the way stemming back to the eighties. Um, he actually ran an obesity clinic and I won't go into the details of all the things, but basically what he found is that a large percentage of his patients, um, were actually victims of childhood sexual abuse. And he started to draw connections between um, events that would happen in childhood that would then have an adverse uh, effect, either mentally, physically, or both in their Mm -hmm. adult life. And it's one of the most kind of uh, seminal research studies yeah. still to this day, especially when and, we're talking about And trauma. my husband's a pediatrician and he totally uses like, yes, this is, this is 
very used now. Is yeah. This, there's a and whole scale of possible adverse yes. childhood experiences. And then you, you come mm-hmm. up with a score, you know, based yeah. on, did you go through any of these things? Yeah. Yes. And mm-hmm. so it really was groundbreaking at the time. It still is. I think they're looking for ways to continue to expand it, to include more things as, you know, as more research is coming out. But we really liked that model. Um, We did differentiate a little bit, but really our working hypothesis was that uh, the more adverse religious experiences you've had, the more likely it would that it be that it resulted in trauma and or other physical and mental health disorders or disease. Now, where we de- have a departure from the ACE uh, study is they do have their 10 categories, yes. Yes. right? And so if you had experience three of them, then your ACE score is a three. Or if you experience eight, your ACE score is an eight. So in that, you know, the higher the score, the more likely for a long-term result. So we do agree with that. The higher, the more adverse religious experiences you have, the greater the likelihood of it resulting in trauma. But we also, two things, realize that just one adverse religious experience can result in trauma and a hundred adverse religious experiences may not result in trauma. So we wanted to leave some space there. And we also wanted to not categorize them the way that the ACE study does. So if you look at the ACE study, you won't see anything about like high control religion or cults. Yet we know that children who grew up in high control religion or cults absolutely are experiencing adversity. So there are some limitations there. We didn't want to put them in categories simply because we want people to have the freedom to be able to say, this was an adverse experience for me, even if it doesn't meet, you know, these Mm -hmm. arbitrary categories that are decided. Um, So it is giving people the ability to have that self-awareness and insight that was often taken away from them inside of a high control religion and giving them permission to be able to kind of organize and name what it is that they've experienced Um, And that, and in a lot of cases that they could realize that, yeah, it, it actually was that bad. You know, um, I think of so many purity culture teachings that just destroyed people's sense of self-worth and increased the shame exponentially, even to the point where we're seeing, um, you know, and this is backed by research now, like significant increase in like sexual pain disorders. That and, was our research. <laughs> yeah. And sexual dysfunction yeah. and yeah. things like that. Where yeah, it's cause, like, cause we found like vaginismus, we have about yep. two to two and a half times the rate of the general population. And it's, the yeah. two biggest things that we found in our surveys are the, ob- like believe in the obligation sex message when you marry yes, and, yes. um, receiving the modesty mm-hmm. message as a teenager. Yes. In some form. If you, if you believe that you are at least partially responsible for a boy sinning, then your chance of vaginismus massively increases. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 There's also there's also an increase if you wait for the wedding night. If if you compare couples that only have sex with one person, um, which we think is because you're having sex for the first time unaroused plus the obligation, like you don't have a choice now. Yes. So yeah. We need to find ways to give women back autonomy mm-hmm. and teach yeah. people. Teach people yeah. about arousal, you know, for the absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, we see that then these things become extreme, like the impacts is very long lasting. Mm-hmm. Th- like those messages bypass natural human development, the arousal cycle, just our mm-hmm. bodies being able to be prepared. And oftentimes, um, and this is not unequivocal, it's not every single time, but for a lot of women, especially when they go from saying, no, 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 no. And now it's yes on my wedding night. And so we do this thing that I'm supposed to do. 
now because it's it's right you know three hours ago it wasn't but now it is right um our bodies oftentimes respond the same way that victims of sexualized violence respond. Mm -hmm. So we have even a lot of research there where we're seeing, okay, so, you know, purity culture victims and survivors are matching sexual assault survivors. Because, and I I really do think it's because of the lack of autonomy. You feel like you have no autonomy because, Mm -hmm. well, now we're married, so I have to. Yep. And yeah. And so it is, you know, even if your husband isn't the one forcing you, you feel like you have to. And right. So it's just, it's just a, yeah, Mm -hmm. really, really messy thing. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I have a story for you. So in in your book, in your book, you, you talk about your own story and I I really like the way you handled it. Cause like you sort Mm -hmm. of gave the big picture, but you didn't give like a ton of detail because your point Mm -hmm. was, your story doesn't have to match mine. Right. right? Yes. Like we, all yeah. have, we all have our own stories mm-hmm. and it's not like your story has to look exactly the same right. mm-hmm. for it to count as trauma. And, mm-hmm. you know, as I've been thinking back on a lot of my experiences and how they've affected me again, I don't have the one big thing, mm-hmm. but I, I have had some significant church hurt mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I've shared this with the podcast um, before, you know, a lot of it is just as we've been publishing our research and the way that um, people that used to be my friends that I thought really loved Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. and that are writing books don't care. They they just yeah. don't care that this stuff is hurting women. And that that's yeah. really, that's really hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. But I had an incident and I would say this is probably how old was Rebecca? Like, you know, maybe, maybe like 2004, 2005. So almost 20 years ago now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was leading a praise team at an evangelical Baptist church. Um, and I had kind of taken over because I had been on a praise team and then the leader who was a guy retired and he told me I should just lead it. So I kind of stepped in, but then there were four praise teams in our church. This became a big thing. Cause is it okay for a woman to lead worship? And the yes. first time that I led worship, um, I think between two of the songs, I said something like, you know, as we're getting ready to sing this next song, you know, I just invite you to take the worries of the week. And Mm -hmm. as we're picturing the cross, you know, picturing, putting them at the feet of Jesus and just look up at Jesus. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I said something to that effect, you know, before we sang the song, I see the cross or something. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this became a really big thing to the deacons board because was that preaching? Did I preach? And so first of all, am I allowed to lead worship? And then if I do lead worship, am I allowed Mm -hmm. to say these sentences between the songs Mm -hmm. or am I only allowed to sing? Yeah. And they debated this for a year. (laughs) <laughs> my husband, my husband was on the deacons board. He was really the only one arguing for me. There were others who thought I was doing a good job, but like they didn't know what they thought. And there were quite a few arguing against me being able to do this. Mm. Um, but every month, cause we, you know, there was a ro- four week rotation. I had to get up there and lead knowing that. Yeah. A lot There's of people, yeah. male leaders don't think that I should. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, some of those deacons were actually other praise team leaders. Um, and it was just, it was, it was really mm. mess. And then the conclusion yeah. they came to was that it would be okay if I led as long as um, an elder or the pastor debriefed with me afterwards to make sure that I had done it correctly. And I said, well, do the men have to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? No, they don't. Um, they sure don't. And they finally just let me lead. Like they finally yeah. gave it up and, and, and yeah. they let me lead. But, but I had to go through that for a year. Yeah. Of, it's of wild that. because that's unfortunately 
not uncommon, right? There's Mm -hmm. so many women that share stories like that. And I, to the point where people are like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. But I think Mm -hmm. when you really sit down and like, think about that, you know, like the impact that something like that can have, it doesn't just go away now that this group of men said, okay, I guess it is okay that you say words, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like there's so much impact, everything from shame and fear and hypervigilance and confusions and sense of betrayal. And just, can I even trust myself? You know, am am, am I a true believer? Am I sinning by doing this? You know, like there's so many Mm -hmm. questions that that can then it doesn't just stop there. It then can carry over into other areas of your life yeah. and or past that point. I think for me, it was just that overwhelming feeling of the men here don't think that I'm as yeah. good as they are. Like they think that I am a lesser person. They think that God can't speak through me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, like, I never thought I was sinning. <laughs> yeah. I know some people, <laughs> some people might get that. I yeah. just thought, I just thought, how in the world can I believe that these are my brothers in Christ? Like I just yeah. felt so betrayed. I felt yeah. so betrayed and abandoned. Gosh, I'm yeah. No, it, but it does. It like, yeah, yeah. It, it really it. messes with people. I get that, and it's just, it's not okay. Ooh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Twenty years, mm-hmm. like it's not even a big thing. Like that's the thing, and yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like it's not even yeah. a big thing, but it's like, and let me give you another moment. Okay, I'm 18 years old, um, and I'm at a Bible college, a short-term Bible college in England going before I go to university. And so I just went so that I could spend a couple of months meeting new friends. And we had Bible classes in the mornings. I thought it would be wonderful. And um, one of the Bible classes, we were working through First Timothy and we got to First Timothy 2. And mm. I had already studied all the Greek for this. I had read a lot of the egalitarian resources. And so I wrote up a paper arguing that Mm-hmm. Um, the correct context for the verses that say, you know, I, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man is actually better translated, you know, that, that, that you don't, you don't permit a woman to usurp authority in and of mm-hmm. itself, because the word there is only used once in scripture. And it's like, yeah. well, so, so I wrote all this out and I was talking there. I had a serious crush on this guy. Okay, like a serious, serious crush on this guy. And we had been flirting for like a month. And then I wrote this paper and he totally disagreed with me. And so I argued with him for a couple of days on it, like argued about, okay, well, how can you say that Paul doesn't want women to preach and women to teach when he actually likes Priscilla and Aquila and he names mm. Priscilla first, which in the Greek was a way of saying she's the main something. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And finally I went and he said, you know what? You're right. I actually think you're probably right. And I actually think you're probably wrong, but I just can't listen to a woman teach. I wouldn't be able to take her seriously. So he said that and I just, I felt like, well, I can't expect anything better from a Christian guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever let, and when I got to university, it was the same thing. Like I wouldn't let anyone in my classes Mm -hmm. in a secular university ever, ever tell me that I couldn't do something. But when Mm -hmm. it came to Christians, well, I mean, of course they're going to think that. Yeah. What can I expect? What can mm-hmm. I expect? And it's that constant that yeah. men outside of church treat me better than men inside of church. Yeah. That I can't that, expect the same thing, you know? <laughs> that was such a shock for me when I left my position at the church and I went and I worked at a community college 
And people started just respecting me because I did well at my job and, (laughs) you know, and, and men weren't coming up to me and being like, Hey, you should button your shirt one more button or, you know, whatever. And they just, they treated me like a human and it was not a wonderful job. I didn't love it, but it was (laughs) such an eye opening because that truly, I mean, I would have been 24 or so 24, 25. That was the first time I had a job, not in a church or ministry setting up until that point, every single experience of my free time of my service time of my career was spent in that environment. And so then to have this experience outside of that, you're like, wait, you think I'm capable? I mean, okay. (laughs) I mean, I, I would have to dumb myself down for the men I was with because I was told I was too intimidating. I knew too much. And I'm like, but you, you're telling me, you know, like read the Bible, study it, get to know it. I'm doing these things and I can run circles around these boys, (laughs) you know, and now I'm being punished for that because I know more than they do. But now they're, you're telling me that they see me as unattractive because I know more than them. And it was just, it was such a, like, still to this day, I get a little tentative around men where I'm like, I know I know more than you. And most of the men in my life are like, teach me, please. You know, like, (laughs) but there's always, you know, that's the long-term impact that we're talking about of like, there's always that little hiccup of like, are you going to look at me and tell me, you know, that I I need to be silent, you know, because Mm -hmm. I am a woman and that that's hard. It's hard to deal with sometimes. And I think, you know, when I look back, it's just, over and over and over and over again, you know, that attitude from the guy at Bible college, the attitude from the deacons board, like every, every religious organization I was in, except for the one at my secular university, which was awesome. So big shout out for IVCF um, (laughs) and the IVCF groups on secular campuses. Like, um, yeah, every other religious organization I was in very much yeah, I had to be small and I, and there was something wrong with me because I was a woman and that's just hard. Like Mm -hmm. it's hard. It's, it's hard because, you know, you feel like, does God really not love me as much because I'm a woman? Mm -hmm. But then when, even if you come to terms with that and you believe, no, wait a minute, this is just wrong. Like God totally does love me. And these people are just seeing God wrong. It's like, but then how, like, how is it that people who love God, Mm -hmm. people who know the Bible, how could mm-hmm. they treat me this way? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and that's, that's what actually is, is causing all of the, um, the, the angst and the the stuff in your body now mm-hmm. is like, how can mm-hmm. people who say that they love Jesus, how can they consistently mm. treat people this way? I think yeah. that's what, that's what I find hard to process still. Yeah. There's yeah. so many people, I mean, clients and other people I've spoken to that they'll say, you know, maybe it sounds cliche, but I think I know what they're saying. They'll say, you know, I, as I was going through this like deconstruction process, I felt like I was following Jesus out the door because Mm -hmm. I'm pulling these things apart. And I'm realizing like, I've been taught about the life and character of Jesus. None of this other stuff matches over here. So Mm -hmm. now I have to choose between the church Mm -hmm. 
or the person the church is serving like right you know it's like it's yeah. it can really kind of mess with you <laughs> yeah and thankfully i landed in a church which does both but but yeah you know, there those, you go those there can go. be hard those can be hard to find and it doesn't and just because you land in a church that does both just even if people get in healthy places it doesn't it doesn't take away the pain that mm. Yes. You know, that yeah. everything else caused. So, yeah. um, okay, here's another quote um, from page 43. You said this, you said systems built on dynamics of power and control are abusive at their core. Within mm. those systems is a hierarchy typically built on patriarchy. And then you go on to talk about how there's often a leader at the top and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, why is it that so much of the Christian church is built on power and control when Jesus mm -hmm. told us the opposite. I mean, maybe, maybe that's a theological question, but, but <laughs> like, yeah. how, how has the church become so focused on power and control when Jesus told us it shouldn't be like that with you? Yeah, it, that is, I mean, that is a huge discussion. I mean, I have things I could definitely say about it, <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there are certain areas where I feel like, um, religious cultures and secular cultures are basically the same and patriarchy mm -hmm. is one of them. Um, and, and I mean, kind of like their core tenets are the same. And the difference is that most churches with a patriarchal structure also say, and God said it is supposed to be this way. Mm -hmm. So then we get this ultimate authority that then if you go against that, if you question that, that's questioning God, that's questioning, you know, like, there could be eternal consequences to that. And when we get these structures of people that are in these positions of power and believe that they are speaking on behalf of God, we just keep going with the power, you know, like we just keep tightening those reins bit by bit. And suddenly God becomes a mirror image of me, you know, yeah. versus, yeah. you know, in a different way. And so I think that, you know, at, at its core, if I go like, why does this exist in a church? This might sound weird, but I think it's, I think there's a lot of fear that it's built on of really, really wanting a sense of certainty, right and wrong. I want to know what I have to do in order to live the right way and to get the, the right reward. In this case, it would be heaven. I want to make sure that I don't burn in hell forever. And so if that means that I have these very narrow prescribed ways of living, I will do that. And um, I remember reading a book a long time ago talking about the origin of different religions and denominations. And how is it that, you know, it's like this, you know, a new denomination will be like, no, 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 that's not the way it's this way. And another church will be like, no, 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 that's not the way this way. And it's like this attempt to put enough parameters around it, enough, like a, a box that you can go like, okay, just live inside this box. And if you do, you'll be godly or you'll be living the right way. And if you do that, then you're okay. And you're good. And you will get this reward. And it's um, I really believe there's a fear underneath that driving that of like, yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want to be gone. I want to be here, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's another thing that you've dealt with a lot is, um, in the book is how, uh, religion can actually create hypervigilance based on yes. fear too. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So when we're looking at like high control religion or fundamentalism, we're looking at ways of 
and patterns of thinking and relating, there's a lot of prescription. Here's the things that you do or say, here's what you don't do. Here's what you don't say. Here's who is okay. Here's who's not okay. It's very binary and, and mm-hmm. dual, uh, I think it's called dualistic. So it's, it's this way or it's that way, right mm-hmm. or wrong, good or bad. Everything is categorized. And, um, and any, you know, you obviously are in the good column, you know, so anybody <laughs> outside of that or not living according to that is bad or wrong or evil or sinful or whatnot. Um, that in and of itself can give a little bit of a sense of safety or an illusion of safety because I'm in the good column. I'm in the right mm-hmm. column. This is good. But it also is a lot of hypervigilance because I'm constantly having to do more and more and more to make sure that I'm continuing to fit whatever that mold is. And that can sometimes change from person to person uh, because this person says, oh, God wants you to be like this. And this other person says, well, no, God wants you to be like this. And so now it's um, in therapy terms, we call that an external locus of control where I'm looking to all these other people to tell me and what I'm, is what I'm doing okay, which then means I'm okay. That's a very anxious spot to live in. And yet that is how we are invited to live in a high control religion. Um, I was terrified of making a mistake when I was growing up. Any mistake, I was constantly berating myself and critical and terrified that if I made a mistake and somebody saw it, that was going to be even worse. Um, because now not only have I sinned, but somebody saw me sin, maybe they're stumbling mm-hmm. because of my sin. I've got to repent. I've got to go through the process of restoration for any mistake that I may have made. And that is just, that's it. Like I can even remember, even as I'm saying that I'm like, Oh, my shoulders are rising. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> I remember the terror of standing in front of my closet and being like, what shirt should I wear? Be, you know, and Oh, what if I make a mistake? And that, that could mm-hmm. lead to a life of singleness, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds so extreme. And yet that is how a lot of high control religions mm-hmm. operate. Yeah. That's so true. And of course then, yeah. And then, like you said, it, your shoulders go up, like that lives in the body, like hypervigilance yes. lives yeah. in the body and it, it yes. means that you're always on mm-hmm. and the adrenaline's always there. And that's, that's yeah. a terrible way to live. It's just, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and, and speaking of the body, a large part of your book, like, like you spend, you know, the first, the first few chapters, just talking about the problem of trauma, why, what, what trauma, um, can look like in high control religious environments, et cetera. But then you do talk about like how to move forward and how to get over, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is body work, you know, and how to feel comfortable in your body again and how not to treat your body like an enemy. Um, yes. can mm-hmm. you tell me about that? Why do we do that? Yeah. You know, I really believe like our body has so much knowledge, so much wisdom. Um, with that, it's it's hard to separate even like body and sexuality. And I don't mean like whose genitals are smashing into one another. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the essence of who we are as a sexual being. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are such important pieces. So such intricate pieces to who we are, the essence of who we are. And Mm -hmm. That is powerful. 
Like that's a powerful thing that could be very scary to people who are trying to control you. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we take away and we cut things off and we say, this is bad, this is sinful, this is evil, this is wrong. That could be just kind of the essence of who we are, our innate sexuality, our body. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard like your body is evil. Your body needs to be made a slave to Christ. Ignore your body, right? Mm-hmm we're taught all these things, which means we're cutting off valuable sources of information, of knowing, of making meaning, of connection, all of these things. And that actually makes somebody easier to control. If I tell somebody, you know, from the neck down, you can't trust any of that. And then I have, I don't know, like my stomach growls. Well, I can't even trust to know that I'm hungry because that is that's part of this sinful flesh bag that I'm living in. Right. (laughs) And so we have, so I really believe then healing is, it's like a very integrative process. Like, yes, we do need to cognitively untangle certain beliefs and understand uh, what things mean. And, And do I actually believe that are those my values? We just have to take it further than that and move down into our body, be reconnected to our body, listening to our body, knowing that our body is a source of being able to experience pleasure and connection. And when we do that, like we have access to like a whole self. And, and I think that truly is where healing is. It's like a reintroduction to self and being able to lean into our goodness, um, that is within us. And, and I think that that oftentimes starts in the body because that's where we're cut off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I loved your analogy. Um, when you were talking about sex of the dimmer switch versus the on off switch. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Can you tell me about that? And how have you seen that in your practice? Yeah. So I, so my practicum and internship for uh, my master's degree, I actually worked with um, sex offenders, convicted adult and juvenile sex offenders. And I mean, I knew nothing about mm-hmm. sex or sexual sex education. Cause I had abstinence only education growing up. Um, and I was supposed to do sex ed with the juvenile, uh, sex offenders and their parents, because, um, most of them were victims of sexual assault as well. And all the things, and mm-hmm. somebody gave me this analogy and, I modified it a bit and it works. But the analogy is this, is that our sexual, our sexuality is innate from the time we are born. We are sexual beings. Um, And so it's much bigger than who are we having sexual intercourse with? It is part Mm -hmm. of who we are. And so from the moment we are born, it's there. And I use the analogy of like an, uh, like a dimmer switch where you can like slowly turn it up and it can get brighter And that I believe is how our sexuality is supposed to work. Like how our sexual, like Mm -hmm. leaning into who we are as a sexual being, how that looks with other people, um, you know, engaging in sexual activity. And so when it, you know, when we're three or four, that's going to look like a lot of curiosity and exploration when we're, you know, 13, 14, that's when, you know, our hormones are starting to rage (laughs) through our body. And there's a different kind of curiosity and exploration that's where we're introduced to pleasure and it's and if we look at sexual sexual development in that way then by the time that we are ready to engage with sex with a partner our bodies are ready for that we are mm-hmm. engaged with our the sexual our sexual selves now the difference though is that 
okay, we have dimmer switches. We also mm-hmm. have on off light switches, right? And so when we suppress our sexuality, you know, suppress, make it evil, vilify it, you know, turn it mm-hmm. off, turn it off, turn it off. And then we are supposed to say, oh, now I said I do. Mm-hmm. So it's good. Okay. Then it's like turning the switch on. Our body is not prepared for that. Um, and that's where we start to see some of the long-term impact, like we were talking about before, of people's bodies literally freezing up. We're seeing vaginismus. We're seeing sexual pains, sexual dysfunction. We're seeing a lot of shame and guilt and people that are extremely confused because they're like, I kept everything off until I was allowed to turn it on and my body is freaking out. And that's Mm -hmm. also very similar um, in like childhood sexual abuse survivors as well, where it's like where they're at developmentally, uh, if they're sexually abused, it is like a light switch being turned on because where they're like developmentally, biologically, psychologically mm-hmm. is not at the same level as what is being done to them. And so that's where we start to see that we've got the five-year-old who's like extremely sexually active, even though biologically, that's not really mm-hmm. where they should be at. And mm-hmm. so our bodies, the way our nervous system responds to that really is threat and danger. And that's where we do start to see some of this long-term impact, uh, like with the research that you're doing, like that's a nervous system response uh, that we should not necessarily have to go through because our body sees that as threatening and as dangerous, instead of being able to naturally turn Mm -hmm. that on that on off switch, that's the too much, too fast, too soon. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we try to do. Like in our books, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, we really did try to introduce that concept of like, it's not an on off. Like, let's learn the arousal cycle. Let's, Mm -hmm. you know, let's do this, you know, properly so that you don't just just jump and it is too much too soon because it is overwhelming. It's the, I think the most common word we heard from women in our survey about their wedding night, if they waited, was bewildering. You know, like what a horrible word. Yeah, that's not over and over again Mm -hmm. was bewildering. And so we're doing something really wrong. We got to figure this out. Yeah. I remember years and years ago, one of the first couples that I ever worked with, where I was like, oh, this is really, really harmful. I was kind of, I'd already done a lot of deconstruction by that point. And this couple came in just tears running down their face. They'd been married for maybe two years at most. And they were like, we did it exactly how we were supposed to. We didn't even kiss until our wedding Mm -hmm. day. And we were promised that if we did this, here's going to be these results. And they're like, it's been awful, just Mm -hmm. truly, truly awful. And they were really just extremely disconnected and just uh, on the borderline of like, hating one another because of how much shame they felt about themselves and the entire situation. And, and they were bewildered because they were like, this is not what was told Mm -hmm. to us. We were supposed to be able to have all these other things because we did it right. And it's like, that story is unfortunately common, like extremely Mm -hmm. common. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So let me tell you what I, what I really appreciated Laura in your book is just you putting words and validation, I think, to what a lot of people are going through. Because I, I know I hear from people all the time, um, you know, on social media channels and everywhere that, that, that there's just been a lot of church hurt. 
you know, especially yeah. for women who have had yeah. to escape um, destructive marriages and the way the church has treated mm -hmm. them or um, just women growing up in church like I did and just feeling like you're never, mm -hmm. you're never good enough. You're always less than um, your voice is too loud. You need to make yourself smaller. You're a problem. Yeah. Um, it just, it wears on you. And yet, and, and, and then you start feeling like, you know, I, I can't even go to church. I am so stressed every Sunday morning. You know, I am so stressed. I wake yeah. up with a headache. My heart's pounding. Mm. And you're like, why is this happening? I love Jesus. And then you start the self-blame. Like, what, do you not want to go worship? And, I'll, mm -hmm. and I, I think just giving words to people and saying, yeah, like when you're in a, uh, yeah. an environment that looks like this, your body mm. can feel too much too soon too fast. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. just overwhelming sometimes. Um, yeah. and so giving worse that, that you're not, you're not crazy. If your body, if yeah, yeah your heart's racing, if you're getting the stomach yeah. aches, if you're getting the headaches, if you're, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're finding mm -hmm. yourself dancing up, um, you're not crazy. There's just, there's something mm -hmm. happening and being able to identify that and work through that. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And even just getting integrated with your body again, I thought it was really helpful. So, so thank yeah. you for giving Aww, words to that you. to people. I really, I really appreciate it. Yeah. So again, yes, yeah. the book is When Religion Hurts You by Laura Anderson. Um, it was mm -hmm. just out. What, when did it release? Early November? Late um, October? October 17th. Uh, uh, yeah, Mid-October. Okay. Yeah. So about a month so and a half ago. Still yeah, <laughs> still new. But you can pick it up. We will put links in, in the podcast notes where you can get it, When Religion Hurts You. And where can people find you, Laura? Yeah, I'm on all social media uh, platforms um, at Dr. Laura E. Anderson. Okay. And that's my website as well, DrLauraEAnderson.com. So that's where you can go to find all the things I do, the podcasts that I host, the okay. Substack, uh, coaching, they're like all the things consultations. So, and there's also links to the book. Um, we do have a little kind of fun incentive that if you read the book and you leave a review on Amazon or Goodreads, you can screen grab that, upload it into the website and you'll get some free resources just oh, as awesome. a thank you for doing that. Okay. So, well, I will yeah. put a link. I will put a link to that too, um, where people can, can find out about that. That is wonderful. So thank you for doing yeah. this work and thank you for helping thank make the you. church healthier because yeah, we need that. It, it's not an anti-church yeah. thing. It's a let's get back right. to what's healthy and what's whole and what's mm -hmm. what's good. So I appreciate that so much. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Bear Marriage Podcast. I hope that this conversation with Laura was encouraging, validating, and hopeful for those of you who have struggled with church hurt or spiritual abuse in your past. As always, if you want to check out anything that we discussed in this podcast, you can find it in the show notes or in the blog post that goes along with this, which I believe is also linked in the show notes. And if you enjoy this podcast, could you please rate it five stars? It helps us a ton. I can't even tell you how much it helps us, but it really does. We appreciate all of you who've already done that. And uh, we thank in advance everyone who decides to now. But until next time, thank you again for joining us. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye.